Our God, you yourself, as you used men, you moved them along to write your word. You, you tell us that all scripture is inspired by you. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so as we come to this sacred time of our worship service where you address your church, you speak to your church through your word as it's explained, we ask that your spirit would help us in our conviction as we confess that this book before us is inspired by God. It is absolutely inerrant without error. It is authoritative over our lives and it is absolutely sufficient for us to lead lives of godliness. So as we embark upon this study this morning, might your spirit work in our hearts and lives to produce Christ-likeness, to equip us for every good work. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you join me this morning in Ephesians Chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, we would like to look at part 1 of the Apostle Paul's praise for Trinitarian redemption. I don't know how many of you have J.I. Packer's book in your library, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. uh, This is an old book. uh, cover uh, the one in our book nook is uh, is a shorter scrunched down uh, version, but uh, this is a formative work. If you have wrestled through trying to understand uh, the doctrine of Scripture of election and how it relates to our proclaiming the gospel to every creature, this is a. a, a a resource we would commend to your your reading. And as we exposit Scripture, we start in the first verse of any given biblical book, and then we march right through to the last verse. And so included in verse-by-verse consecutive exposition is dealing with hard passages and hard doctrines. And so we find ourselves confronted with the doctrine of election this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. Well, as Packer writes in his uh, book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he said there's a long-standing controversy in the church as to whether God is really Lord in relation to human conduct and saving faith or not. What has been said shows us how we should regard this controversy. The situation is not what it seems to be. For it is not true that some Christians believe in divine sovereignty while others hold an opposite view. What is true is that all Christians believe in divine sovereignty, but some are not aware that they do and mistakenly imagine and insist that they reject it. What causes this odd state of affairs? The root cause is the same as in most cases of error in the church the intruding of rationalistic speculations, the passion for systematic consistency, a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and to let God be wiser than men, and a consequent subjecting of Scripture to the supposed demands of human logic. P. 
People see that the Bible teaches man's responsibility for his actions. They do not see, man indeed cannot see, how this is consistent with the sovereign lordship of God over these acts. They are not content to let the, true, the two truths live side by side as they do in the Scriptures, but jump to the conclusion that in order to uphold the biblical doctrine of human responsibility, they are bound to reject the equal biblical and equally true doctrine of divine sovereignty and to explain away the great number of texts that teach it. The desire to oversimplify the Bible by cutting out the mysteries is natural to our perverse minds and is not surprising that even good men should fall victim to it. Hence this persistent and troublesome dispute. The irony of the situation, however, is that when we ask how the two sides pray, it becomes apparent that those who profess to deny God's sovereignty really believe in it just as strongly as those who affirm it. How then do you pray? Do you ask God for your daily bread? Do you thank God for your conversion? Do you pray for the conversion of others? If the answer is no, I can only say I do not think that you are yet born again. But if the answer is yes, well, that proves that. Whatever side you may have taken in debates on this question in the past, in your heart you believe in the sovereignty of God no less firmly than anyone else. On our feet, we may have arguments about it, but on our knees we are all agreed. And it is this common agreement of which our prayers give proof that I take this starting point. And then he launches into his uh, explanation of the sovereignty of God and salvation and yet our responsibility to evangelize the world. Because on our knees, everyone's Calvinist. <laughs> Everyone believes in the sovereignty of God. And uh, uh, let me just remind you as we begin marching down through verses 3 to 14, we'll only get through a few verses this morning, but just a reminder of what we said last week as we introduced the book. In dealing with the first half of Ephesians, chapter 1 through chapter 3, we're looking at God's revelation of His plan for the church that, yes, includes election, which we'll look at this morning. And then the latter half, which addressed the behavior of believers in the church. This section, verses 13 to 14, which is a prolonged section, which will take us a few weeks to uh, explain, contains one of the most glorious and symmetrical doxologies to be found anywhere in Scripture. It consists of three stanzas. We'll look at just at stanza one this morning. But each concluding with the repetition of to the praise of God's glory. You see that in verse 6, you see that in verse 12, and you see that in verse 14, kind of marking off three stanzas of this great doxology of praise, each emphasizing a different person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Verses 3 through 6, which will uh, contain our, our time together this morning, chiefly speaks of the work of the Father. Verses 7 through 10, that of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son. And verses 11 through 14, the work of the Holy Spirit. 
John Stott uh, gives a, a different outline uh, as he talks about the past blessings of election in verses 4 to 6, the present blessings of adoption, verses 5 to 8, and the future blessings of unification in 9 and 10. So in this, in this grand doxology that will take a few weeks to study through at the feet of the Apostle Paul, in its scope, it covers the entire sweep of redemption, beginning in the, with the, the election of God to its consummation when we receive our full inheritance. Let me invite you to glean two prompts to worship in these opening verses of this doxology, this praise for Trinitarian redemption. Two prompts to worship so that we would learn to bless God for His plan and worship the Father for His elective purposes in the very beginning. Notice, first of all, verse number 3, the eulogy that He gives. Actually, we ought to read the text to kind of cement it in our minds. Begin with me at the very first verse. We looked at verses 1 and 2 last week. The apostle identifies himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now stop with me for just a moment and, and, and go back to verse number 3. Paul begins with a eulogy, eulogetos. It's an inscription of praise to God for who He is and what He's done we see this type of beginning uh, in various uh, uh, books of uh, Scripture. We find it in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 7. Uh, blessing God is a, has, a, has a very Jewish flavor to it. And the, term, the Hebrew term barak is often used in the Old Testament, blessing God. And we find that even in the, uh, the Greek translation, the Septuagint of the Old Testament. We find it through the Psalms in uh, 1 Chronicles 29.10. The Jews had a, uh, a prescribed set of prayers to pray morning, afternoon, and evening called the 18 benedictions, each of which expressed, Blessed are you, Lord. Peter the apostle to the Jews similarly, similarly would begin his first epistle. If you want to set your eyes upon First Peter to remind yourself of how he begins to address them in First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9, notice his eulogy, his blessing of God. First Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So as, as Peter pens this syllabus for suffering saints that have been scattered abroad for persecution, as he readies them for that, to rejoice, and, and they reflect upon the gospel of God's grace, he breaks out in this eulogy and praise and adoration and thanksgiving for this great salvation in Christ. Blessed be God, praising God for His marvelous plan of salvation. But this eulogy back in Ephesians 1 of, of Paul is unusually long. Though it's... Uh, verse 3 kind of summarizes, uh, it extends all the way through verse 14. This eulogy is one sentence containing 202 words. Paul constructs it with 32 prepositional phrases, six relative clauses, and five adverbial participle clauses of note for you grammarly sorts of people in our congregation. Uh, It's just a masterpiece, one long extended sentence Uh, which is kind of summarized in in verse number 3. But Paul will use this, and he weaves it together in in beautiful artistic and smooth-flowing declaration of praise to God for his indescribable, trying to describe the indescribable. uh, uh, So it's a good thing God chose men to write this so that it is inspired by God, this indescribable work on our behalf. He does so with great emotion, and it's intended to richly move all who would read it that day and hear it proclaimed even in our day. This is kind of, verse 3 is kind of a thesis of which the rest of the passage will give the main points of the Father and the Son and the Spirit of praise to God. Notice what he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What a word for saints. Uh, it, you know, I, I read for us from, from Peter's eulogy, and uh, w- what a word for, for the saints of his day and reminder, you're going to suffer persecution. Life's going to be tough to be a follower of Christ. It could be the end of family as you know it, the end of, of job as you know it. It could be the end of life, especially if you seal it in baptism. It can be no different in, for saints in our day who do what we do under pain of death. Maybe we'll be there someday. But even if, if not for, for persecution... Life in a fallen world is hard. What a message Paul's got for saints who face insurmountable odds with depressive or oppressive events that come our way. A reminder even at this season, 
for those that go through the holiday blues with difficulty. For some, they're going to be celebrating the holidays the first time without particular loved ones that they've always done for with their family traditions. What a word of hope and encouragement as we reflect upon the gospel of God's grace so that we can bring our emotions obedient to the fact of Scripture that God has in fact blessed all saints. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice the, the, uh, the nature of these blessings that uh, the Apostle speaks of. They are spiritual. That clarifies the nature. They're associated with the new covenant gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember what the prophet would say would, would be characteristic of the new covenant back in Ezekiel 36, 27? God said, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. They would no longer be the, the ordinances of the Mosaic legislation that would be external. They would be internal. And the Spirit would be the aid towards obedience. It would become the, this, this love that we do so not out, out of legalism, but we delight to do His law. You know, this will be especially highlighted in the last section uh, that we're in in verses 13 and 14. But God blesses His people by choosing them to be His very own and forgiven the wickedness that had alienated them. And this, this whole section is going to unpack that glorious truth of what these blessings are like in the spiritual realm, not the earthly realm. We can, we can experience new covenant blessings all that God intends for us, that doesn't mean life's going to be a rose garden and it's going to be easy, earthly speaking. Humanly, it can be insurmountable. But if you're in Christ, these blessings are relating to your new nature in Him, your new position, what we participate in even now. Let me give you just a preview. I can't wait till the next coming, coming weeks as, as this all gets woven together. If you wanted to jot these down, uh, you know, num- number one preview would be election. Instead of destroying the, the value of human choice, what the Apostle is going to teach us is that God gives the capacity for us choosing Him who would not choose Him when left to ourselves. Our human will, apart from grace, was against God. And we'd always choose the wrong until we'd receive the new nature. He frees us unto holiness and actually guarantees holiness in His elect ones, His saints. Preview number two. How about adoption that He'll also talk about this morning? Becoming God's sons, God's daughters, with all the privileges implied therein. To be heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, as Paul would write about in Romans 8.17. Preview number three, how about redemption? How the, to be a saint is to be delivered from the slavery of sin by the death of Christ. We're born in sin. We receive a sinful nature from our parents. Thanks, mom and dad. Now, David reminds us in, in Psalm 51, uh, 5, in, in sin I was conceived from the very moment of conception, we are sinners, not just sinners, by choice, 
but sinners by nature. We sin because we're sinners, not the other way around. And so we've been, we've been redeemed. How about preview number four? Forgiveness of sins. In uh, verse seven that we'll start getting into next week, uh, uh, he connects this uh, redemption, this forgiveness of sins. But it's different. It's a different term and a different emphasis because when, when we trace forgiveness through Scripture, we see Scriptures emphasizing the wonder the wonder of forgiveness and living in the lavishness of being forgiven. That He forgives all my sins, Psalm 103.3. God says He'll remember their sins no more, Jeremiah 31.34. How about a fifth preview of why Paul is eulogizing and praising God? How about revelation of God's purpose in history? In spite of the day in which he wrote, to the people in which he wrote, you've got Greek pitted against Roman, you've got Jew against Gentile, you've got rich against poor. God predestined in salvation to bring all together in submission under him. What a glorious culmination he's got planned. Number six preview, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. So that in his day and age, just as a seal of a document would promise that the promises therein are valid, so the Spirit is the mark of God's ownership. None of his promises will fail and not come to fruition. And seventh preview, if you can't wait till we get there, is inheritance. That the Holy Spirit himself is a portion of our inheritance. He is the down payment on the fullness of the inheritance already ours in Christ Jesus. So, this skillfully developed eulogy should do for us what it did for Paul and what it did for the Ephesians. It ought to extract worship from saints, not only to whom it was written, but to whom study it today as Scripture stands above cultures and above times and extends down through the ages to God's people. So that the saints who live in humility can learn from it in 2015. What lavish blessing to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing and we'll start looking at some of those different aspects. Notice how verse 4 begins, just as, just as. He's kind of connecting in the beginning of verse 4. It uh, could be better translated because if you're one that writes in your... If you, I hope you bring to church your write-in Bible. You know, I, I bring my preaching Bible. It's got no, no marks in it. Uh, if you write in your Bible, this would be a good place to write in because instead of just as, to, to help our, our learning process. He's going to give some reasons why God is so worthy of praise and adoration. An ex- ex- explanation. God has so richly blessed us because He's chosen us in Christ, predestined us for adoption, and so on. 
So this eulogy is, the, is a basic summary of the whole section that he's going to unfold as he offers a threefold refrain of praise, the first stanza we look at today. Let's move on to point two, that we'd glean about the Father's part of the redemptive plan, the Father's part of redemption's plan, which includes election and predestination. I hope you caught last week's mention of union with Christ, which is one of the main themes in the letter. One of the illustrations that the apostle will use even in this book of Ephesians for union is towards the, towards the end of the book in chapter 5, the marriage union. As we think of union... we see part of God's fingerprint on his creation in role distinction. There's, uh, in the church, there, there is distinction in role. It's not the, uh, whatever the old movie was, whatever you can do, I can do better. Uh, there, there's role distinction in the church. There's role distinction in the home. There's role distinction in the trinity. All members of the Trinity are equally God, yet not are attributed for the same aspects of salvation. Though you see them working together in great harmony, and so the church is to work together, though equal, they're different, and in the home, equal but different. You see different parts of our eternal redemption attributed to particular members of the Trinity. And here is where we're informed that that though the beginning of human experience, we go back to Genesis 1 and 2 for human experience of when God created man, you've got to go back before Genesis 1 for redemption. The plan of redemption was before. When only God existed, He chose a people for Himself and devised a way of freeing them from their enslavement to sin. So the apostle begins with his basis for praise that he just offered in verse 3 with the great theme of divine election. Notice very clearly what he says in the inspired words. Because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us. Election is a difficult doctrine for many. Eklegomai is used 45 times of divine choosing, something that took place in eternity past, an act of the sovereign Lord. It is done according to his perfect will. It is for his own glory and his own good pleasure. It's not conditioned by anything in man. It is... It reflects mercy, grace, and the justness of God, and it is done in or through Christ. Nowhere does the Bible teach that election negates human responsibility. Like uh, the opening illustration from Packer's book, we must admit that the Bible does teach election, God's sovereignty and salvation, and it does teach human responsibility and where they intersect in the mysterious mind of God, not for our logic to try to uh, unpack in our experience. 
If we were to go to particular texts that would teach both of them, we might find ourselves in, in John 6, where we see both doctrines side by side taught. In John 6, 44, Jesus said that none can come unless the Father draws. There's God's sovereignty. And in verse 47, he who believes has eternal life. There's our responsibility to believe. The gospel's a command to turn and be saved. When we study election, whether it be guys gathering that, we've, that we did in a couple of Saturdays here, or when we're going down through the text, we can't seek to study it, remove from other doctrines, segregated from like the doctrine of, of total depravity. Now, there's three basic views of, on, on election. One would be outright denial. Outright denial. That people must choose this salvation of their own free will. This appeals to what we all naturally like to think about our abilities, that given the choice, we'd choose the better. Yet we must submit to Scripture that teaches, as, as John Stott calls election, a divine revelation, not a human speculation. Or as the doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls it, a statement, not an argument. God's not interested in getting in a debate or trying to convince you one way or another. He states it as fact, and so we submit to it as our authority. So we can't read Scripture and take the first view on election that it just, that we can deny it as saints and followers of Jesus. So that leaves a, a second alternative. Uh, election based on foreknowledge. How often have you turned on the radio or, or, or been invade, in, involved in a discussion with somebody who takes the middle of the, tries to take the middle of the road discussion that, yeah, the, the Bible teaches election, but they don't give credence to what it really means because they think that uh, biblical election is either unjust or arbitrary, why does he choose some and not choose others? The French theologian Calvin put it like this in regards to those who postulate that God looks down the corridor of time to see who would choose him and then names them his elect. He put it this way, How should God foresee that which could not be? For we know that all Adam's offspring is corrupted and that we do not have the skill to think one good thought of doing well and much less, therefore, are we able to commence to do good. Although God should wait a hundred thousand years for us if we, we could remain so long in the world, yet it is certain that we should never come to him nor do anything else but increase the mischief continually to our own condemnation." In short, the longer men live in the world, the deeper they lunge themselves into their own damnation. And therefore, God could not foresee what was not in us before he himself put it in us, unquote. So think about election in regards to what Scripture teaches about 
what we were before Christ intervened in our lives. You know, this election based on foreknowledge, this position, they don't have a problem with election. They've got a problem with total depravity or total inability, whichever phrase you want to use. In other words, how bad is man? When man fell, how, do, how far did he fall? When we search the Scriptures, we find that man is incapable of making the smallest movement toward God unless God reaches down and performs the miracle of the new birth. How can you, who are accustomed to doing evil, do good? That's a good question from the prophet. Or as Paul's going to develop it in Ephesians, as he reflects upon our spiritual biography before Christ, He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That deadness metaphor has only one meaning. We can't redefine deadness in uh, Ephesians 2.1. And what Paul would write to the Romans, that no one seeks God, Romans 3.11. Or what I'd already mentioned from the lips of Jesus back in John 6.44, none can come unless the Father draws. If, if every inclination of our hearts is only evil continually, what possible good could God foresee in our hearts? What good could He expect of those who cannot come to Him nor even seek Him? So we can't outrightly deny election, nor can we take a middle of the road if we understand our deadness before Christ intervened. Because there's a third alternative. That's election, pure and simple. That we were too hopelessly lost. That God in mercy chose and He made His choice effectual. He made salvation possible by sending Christ to die for sin, and then He made us capable of responding by sending His Spirit to open our our blind eyes, humbling our prideful hearts. So that we could see the glory of the gospel. Think of some of the prophet of believe in what the Bible teaches us about election. First and foremost, it it eliminates boasting, does it not? It eliminates all of it. No room left for human pride. Election was in no part dependent on men, but was accomplished through Jesus Christ. So says the Apostle. And it can be explained only by the good pleasure of His will. So instead of asking the question, why would God choose so-and-so? Why would God choose me? Well, it's for the pleasure of His good will. We can't go beyond Scripture. He loved me because He loved me. He chose me because He chose me. It's not governed by anything good or attractive in men. When does Paul say that this whole thing was orchestrated by the Father? Before the foundation of the world. This is before our creation, let alone when we were a glimmer in Daddy's eye. You know, it goes way back. Before we could try to even merit favor, though we cannot. 
with a holy God. Not governed by anything good or attractive, anything outside of God himself, but as an act of his own goodness. No wonder why Paul starts off this section with eulogizing and blessing God for redemption. He chose, he predestined, he freely gave, and is to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul's not stating a harsh and fatalistic doctrine. On the contrary, the Bible teaches all men are dead in sin and none would be saved apart from God intervening in their lives. Praise God for his mercy. It eliminates all boasting. Second of all, it gives assurance of salvation. You know, when he says in, uh, in the next verse that we'll look at in a moment that, uh, uh, about predestination, predestination always speaks of believers. Yes, it's still true that whosoever will may come. And it's because of God's sovereign grace that some respond in repentant faith. Adoption gives security that I've been forever adopted into the Father's family. We must be thoroughly resolved and persuaded that we're His children. That's why it's one of the great uh, spiritual endeavors to do, uh, like, like Paul teaches in, uh, excuse me, Peter does in 2 Peter 1, making, being diligent to make your call and election sure. Go through the religious affections of scriptural evidences of regeneration. So that in the last day, if you, you know, you've heard it say, said when somebody shares Christ with you, you go out in evangelism, if you were to die today and stand before God, he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? Often I get either the blank stare or the, well, I don't really know. You better know. You don't want the altar call worker uh, that's not available that day to say, I remember when you prayed the prayer, look at the front cover of your Bible when you uh, prayed the sinner's prayer with me, accepted Jesus, and you lived like the devil the next 30 years. You want the Spirit of God taking His Word, testifying of biblical fruit, of which He takes credit for, not me left to myself, to work it up in my own bootstrap theology. Election gives great assurance as we... As we work out our salvation, we're affirmed by our religious affections that validate the work of the Spirit, of which we cannot explain humanly. I think of a third prophet of election. It leads to holiness. It's related to the above, that, of a given assurance, but you know, far from encouraging sin, it lays at our feet the necessity of holiness because we understand privilege. To whom much is given, much is required. God poured His love upon me. How could I do anything to defame His name of the one I love? Leads us into holiness. Fourthly, it promotes evangelism. Though God has elected a people for the praise of His name, as one put it, we can't roll up each other's Shirt tails to see if you've got an E stamped on your back so you preach, the world, uh, you preach the gospel to the world. You don't know who the elect are, but the Spirit will draw as we're faithful to sow the word. So, beloved, as we think about this doctrine, 
that has brought much consternation to many people. It is, it is such a blessing to understand redemption plan as Paul unfolds it and he begins at the starting point before the creation account in the very beginning, before the foundation of the world, that God chose us that we'd be holy and blameless before him. I trust that you know him. If you haven't, speak with Pastor Joey and myself after the service. We'd love to talk to you about Christ. But the term used here in verse 4, he chose ex legato, is a term commonly used in the Old Testament, the Greek translation, the Septuagint, for God's choice of individuals. We're told that, that God chose Abraham. We're told that he chose Aaron. He chose Moses. He chose David. He chose Eli's father. Most importantly, he chose Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, for him to be his own special possession. When God chose Israel, even the nation, Israel, when they weren't, he created them. Had nothing to do with Israel's choice or righteous behavior. As for our scripture reading, we were in Micah 5, and as Pastor Joey was leading us in pastoral prayer before the throne of grace, you look at the, the, uh, Israel's uh, history log in the Old Testament. It's a history of unfaithfulness. If we could do anything to get ourselves saved, we couldn't do anything to keep ourselves saved. You know, it wasn't based on their religious behavior. The opposite of true. See how unfaithful and disobedient she as a nation was. And you'll see through this letter to the Ephesians that uh, going back between a group and an individual, group and individual who comprised the group, the commands he's going to give towards the last half of the book are applied to each individual in obedience. The, the new element of election is that each one has been, been put in Christ, a cho- the chosen one par excellence. So in regards to election, when? Before the foundation of the world. The Greek phrase could actually be rendered from the beginning of time with the corresponding Hebrew expression from prehistoric times. Thus, the first act of God regarding humanity even before creating them was redemption's plan. The fact that this is when he did his choosing strongly underscores, and don't miss this, underscores his initiative and his grace and salvation. It indicates his choice was due to his own free decision and his love, not dependent on temporal circumstances or human merit. It's rooted in the depths of his gracious and sovereign nature. What a precious doctrine this ought to be to us who are in Christ. And notice his intent, the purpose or the goal of election in that same verse that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Even under the Old Covenant, God summoned His chosen people to a life of holiness and purity. We read in the worship manual of the Old Testament, Leviticus, chapter 11, verse 44, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore be holy, for I am holy. And this hasn't changed under the New Covenant. We had read from 
1 Peter earlier in the message, but again, to remind you that it hasn't changed. 1 Peter 1.16. God says, Be holy, for I am holy. In fact, that's where Paul is going to begin when he, when he gets to the, the practical imperative commands to believers in chapter 4, the very first one he gives in Ephesians 4.1. What's he say? Walk worthy of the calling to which you are called, because with privilege comes great responsibility. In other words, election brings both privilege and responsibility. It's not just a repair of damage that was done by sin in our lives, but also God fulfilling the original intention of when He created man for the praise of His glory. So He chose us to be holy, blameless, and He did so out of His great love. You'll notice that uh, at the end of verse 4, in love, they didn't really know what to do. Does this stay with verse 4? Does it, does it go with verse 5? Uh, there's a whole, whole uh, debate. Uh, uh, if, if you keep it with verse 4, you're saying that with our holiness and blamelessness, it's coupled with love in our lives. I would kind of take it with the next verse you'll notice that we've got a new sentence started, in love He predestined us, showing and underscoring His great love in His elective purposes, His attitude to His people when He foreordained them for adoption into His family. So notice how He starts His talk on predestination, that it is in love that He predestined us to adoption. Though predestination is uh, popular in theological discussions, it's a rare biblical word. It appears only six times in the New Testament. You never find it in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It means to decide upon beforehand and thus to predetermine. We can't redefine it, nor do we have to, because in Ephesians 1, uh, just, just take it for face value what the term means. He, he, Paul uses it consistently in Ephesians 1 with how he uses it in 1 Corinthians 2.7 and how he does it in Romans 8.29. Remember what he says in that big long list in Romans 8 and the, and the, uh, the whole uh, plan of, of, of salvation there that whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So God not just chose us to be in Christ, but at the very same time, He decided to bring us into relationship with Himself. And and He uses that metaphor of adoption. This uh, is the manner in which election was affected. God marked out. He selected some to receive adoption as sons. Not everyone would be His son. The Bible teaches us that we are naturally born children of the devil, members of another family of which we do not want to belong, so there must be the new birth. Paul's are totally appropriate to use this this metaphor of adoption to explain what he means by what he said. There was a Roman custom, not a Jewish one, 
but a Roman one in which boys of other families could be adopted and granted full rights and responsibilities. This is what God did in choosing those who, by nature of sin, had no spiritual life. And they're entering into a privileged position with a father. Though human illustrations always fall short, even even the one that Paul chose to use here, can't quite adequately express this glorious exchange that took place in the new birth. That now we would address God, now that the, the wrath of the Father has been turned aside by the Son who fully embraced it for sinners such as us. In this exchange, we can now address him as Father. Us who, as Paul's going to tell us in chapter 2, we used to be sons of disobedience. Chapter 2, verse 2. And verse 3, children of wrath. And it's children of wrath and children who are disobedient to their father who he'd bring near in this Family relationship, a personal relationship made possible only by Christ, the beloved. Matter of fact, he he mentions that right here. You notice how he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. This is, again, Paul, I think I mentioned in our introduction last, last week, Paul in Ephesians is going to give all these new terms, and this is one of them. Nowhere else is Jesus referred to as the beloved. But it's not totally foreign. You remember at Jesus' baptism? And you remember when he was transfigured up on the mountain? Both times, the Father said, this is my beloved Son. He is the beloved One. Paul refers to Him in Colossians 1.13 as the Son of His love. And it is as we are in the beloved One, in Christ, through faith in His name, that God's beloved One becomes precious to us. So not just is He the Father's beloved One, but to the saints that He draws near, He becomes our beloved One. Because he's the one that redeemed us. So we're not just looking for redemption. We're looking to our Redeemer. We're not just emphasizing a plan of salvation, but the person of salvation. The bounty which God lavishes upon us, even as reflected on the table this morning. It's part of getting caught up in the love which subsists between the Father and the Son so that as the Father looks at His Beloved One and we are in the Beloved One and His Beloved One becomes our Beloved One, oh Lord, teach us to love Christ for all He is and all He's accomplished for the praise of Your glory. Notice, lastly, uh, that... This, this adoption, it's so incredible. And uh, you want to intimidate a Bible expositor, give, her, give him Ephesians to go through. I mean, there's so much here. But just to draw your attention to one more little nugget, this adoption, we're told, is, is to the pleasure of his will or the kind intention as the NASB translates it. 
This is designated not just as the purpose of God, but also the delight that he takes in choosing people and predestining them to adoption into his family. This is no mystical Greek God that takes pleasure in the pain of their of mankind. This is one who delights to forgive rebels through his beloved one. It's got a warm and personal connotation and and he draws attention to God's willingness and joy to do so. That he enjoys imparting his riches to his many children. You know, throughout the text he's going to talk about his own sons. Continuing that theocentric focus begun in verse 4. This is all grace to the praise of his glorious grace. This is no simplistic God. This is no dumbed-down evangelistic presentation like like, uh, you hear so often how God loves you and has a great plan for your life and they'll leave out His holiness. They'll leave out man's repentance and the, the need for denial of self. Take up your cross and follow Him. Now live however you want. It's a high view of God with the love which isn't disconnected from holiness. He doesn't leave us to our sin. He frees us to obey out of love. The Father found in His own beloved One all sufficient merits for redeeming men without violating His righteousness. His purpose was to secure persons whose lives would demonstrate God's power in overcoming sin. So He elected a people that they would be holy and blameless before Him. What glorious truths that can solicit only worship and adoring service. Would you pray with me? Our God, we recognize that any time we come to Your inspired Word, there is so much more in there. This is the infinite mind of Christ recorded in Scripture, and it is finite man trying to uh, explicate uh, the crucial truths that we want to learn and that we want to be obedient to, knowing that the next time we go to study the same passage, there's going to be so many more nuggets we find. Such is the nature of the living and active Word of God. And as we reflect upon your elective purposes in eternity past, as we are amazed by you predestining sons to adoption, that we can come to you as Father. What an amazing privilege. And Lord, on this day, when we come to your table, help us to take heed to the warnings that Paul would give the Corinthians to come worthily. We do not come through our own worthiness, but only through the merits of Christ. So, Lord, teach us to be sincere. Teach us to be humbled by the wretchedness of our sin and and, uh, anything that is not Christ in our lives. We still live in a state in which we go back to the pig slop of this world and the uh, besetting sins in our lives that we're seeking to put off. 
So Lord, as a church, would we engage at this moment confessing our sins, knowing that you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because with great privilege comes great responsibility. That you would lavish your elective love upon us helps us to be more sober about our sin and more elated at sovereign grace. We extol you, O God, for your greatness and your kindness in drawing us near and granting us the gifts of faith and repentance. We reflect upon that at this table. Forgive us for any sin. Help us to think much of this table and much of the one whose thorn-crowned brow it pictures. Well, thank you in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.